Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. We are going to discuss chapters four through seven today. Um, first of all, before we get into that, though, Tim, you look like you're in a um, you're in a glass case. Well, it's glass on one side; on the other side, it's it's a uh, carpet. Is it one of those little like boxes that you can sit into work, like a little workstation box? That's exactly what it is. It's My a workstation box. Oh, does he really? Work. And I record there all the time. It's awesome. I love They're those. They're really great. The You're, sound it's like a little inside. phone booth. It is. It's exactly what it is. It's a little phone booth. I work at a place called Switchyards in Cabbage Town, Atlanta. And you sign up for your phone booth and you go in if you've got a reservation. And you make your calls and you record your podcasts. You are on top of life, Tim. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) And you know what the best thing about this is? Is that if this is a, I get to walk from my house to my office. It's like a 10 minute walk. I'm living the dream. (laughs) David is not living the dream. He has a sinus infection. Yeah, I do. I don't know if it's an infection, but it's one of those things where like, you know, your face feels like it's frozen and then your ears feel like someone's stabbing them at the same time. You know so, what's funny? I took some Sudafed, so. I was just going to compliment you on how sultry your voice sounded. Uh, oh, well, uh, like maybe I'm a little Phoebe bit closer. Phoebe and Friends, when she can sing when she has a cold. She sounds better when she has a cold, really? Yeah, she can sing better when she has a cold. Yeah. All right. Is this small talk done? Are we <laughs> yeah, done now? Uh, I think okay. we're done. I think we're done. Hey, we're going to talk about the picture of Dorian Gray. Um this is the section in which um, Heidi was just done with that. She's like done with us talking about how sultry my voice I sounds. I was too many emotions um, because I was so many... happy for Tim and then I was sad for you and I couldn't <laughs> handle it and I had to put a stop to it. Oh, okay. I understand. <laughs> I'm mad. wonder where the listeners are feeling right now. This, the, you know, it's a roller coaster. It's like, it's, like, it's like in the office, snip snap. If that's, uh, you know, if, I'm, if I can bring that, that moment up. Um, Okay, so we're going to discuss four through seven. And in four through seven, I'll just do a quick summary. This is what happens. Sylvain appears. She acts good. Then she falls in love with Dorian. Dorian falls in love with her. Then free from the constraints of the world because she now loves Dorian and Dorian loves her. She acts bad. Then Dorian decides she doesn't like her anymore. He doesn't like her anymore. She gets sad. He has regret. That's the section, basically. Um, you forgot about the picture. Oh, right. The picture frowns, right? It, 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 it has lines the, of cruelty along its mouth. Line, lines of cruelty. That's right. That's right. We're going to talk about all that. But first, Heidi, we have to hear from a sponsor who I believe you have some experience with. Would you like to, would you like to hear who that sponsor is? Yes. Okay. So, Heidi, it's Classic Learning Test. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Which that's right. CLT, yeah, I believe, amazing. I believe Tim Tim knows a little bit about this as well. So CLT is a, it stands for Classic Learning Test. As I said, they offer standardized tests for grades three, three through 12 that serve as alternative, alternatives. Sorry, you know, when you have a sinus infection, like your whole face feels frozen. That's a little bit how I feel right now. So saying words like, as alternatives to assessments is tricky, but they serve as alternatives to assessments like SAT, ACT, PSAT, the Iowa test, and more. They can be taken online and offer a better overall testing experience with shorter testing time. They have an emphasis on critical thinking skills and meaningful reading passages from classic and historic literature. 
They provide valuable academic feedback for parents and teachers while encouraging a love for learning in students. And their college entrance exam is now accepted at 250 colleges and universities, which offer over $100 million annually in scholarships for CLT students. And families with younger students will be excited to learn that CLT's new assessments for grades three through six will be available online in spring 2024. So just, you know, coming up in the new year. Make CLT assessments part of your education by exploring all of their upcoming exams at cltexam.com slash close reads. And that's right, we have our own link. So you can go to cltexam.com slash close reads. We'll post that in the show notes as well. You can uh, check out what they're doing, see how they can help you out. And uh, you know, when you follow that link, it also helps us out here at Close Reads. Now, Heidi, you have experienced this test in your home, right? That's right. My son has taken this test uh, and it's a fantastic alternative to the SAT. Uh, he like he did really well and he knew, he felt very confident with, uh, with his classical education and all that. And I am also on the academic board of advisors. And so I'm really familiar with how the administration works and they're awesome. They have such a vision for yeah. uh, providing access to excellent colleges and universities. Um, and if the kids have to do standardized testing, they really want to provide something that is actually beneficial to the students, not just to the college. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, did you have experience with this? Was it already out when you were still teaching? It's funny because Jeremy Tate, mm -hmm. president, CEO of the CLT, was visiting Eugene when I was teaching there. Mm. And he wanted the college that I was teaching at to be like kind of on the ground floor of the CLT. So so Jeremy and his daughter were attending the National Track and Field Championships, which are held almost every year in Eugene. And so I'd never met him before. And he bought me coffee and he's like, here's what we're trying to do. And I remember thinking, that is such a great idea. This is such a great idea. And I mm -hmm. felt confident that it was going to take off, but I had no idea it was going to take off as quickly as it took off. And here we are. And here we are. If you would like to learn more about what's going on there and see how they can help you out, as I said, it's cltexam.com slash close reads, and that will be in the show notes as well. So thanks to them for sponsoring um, this episode of Close Reads. I think it's a partner that we are glad to and honored to partner with. Okay, so the picture of Dorian Gray. Heidi, I wanted to ask you, one of the things we talked about a little bit last week, I believe, sometimes the conversations that we actually have on the air and what we have off the air kind of run together. But I wanted to ask you about this character of Sybil Vane because she comes into focus, she comes to the fore. And uh, I was kind of, I was thinking about how in some ways her brother, it, well, as I was reading it, felt like one of the more psychologically compelling characters in the book, even though the less like archetypal or clearly metaphorical characters in the book. And I wanted to know what you thought of Sybil as a female character in this book like how how well drawn do you think she is like how as a woman what do you think of this this woman character yeah that's a really good question I think that for me she works as a character because she's a character because she kind of like inhabits this important place in the novel that does, as you said, feel so allegorical as you're reading. Um, and you've got the three main male characters at the center and everybody else kind of feels like they're inhabiting an allegorical position in the novel. They represent something. And she feels like that to me. Her fluidity of self 
awareness and um, like her unstable sense of self works in this and because she's so young. Um, her melodramatic response to falling in love and being rejected maybe a little bit over the top, but the novel's so over the top that right. it doesn't yeah, yeah. bother me, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So I think I think she works. I think if I met this, I I don't think she's like anybody in real life. But I like none of the side characters are. Even Lord Henry isn't really like I've never met anybody like him. He works as a character, but I don't know if he works as like a human. What about the brother Heidi? So he's interesting to me because I think David's right. His he is very psychologically compelling, but he is um, for a lot of reasons. He's one of the the more controversial characters in the book many critics don't like him at all so why did, I, do you know why critics don't like him i yeah. wasn't wild about i mean i i appreciated him because it's like a different class of people he and his mom and his sister mm-hmm. um but i kind of struggled with him as a believable character but what did you go on well i i just thought like um oscar wilde needed to in inject our plot with the threat of physical violence and so like here comes this kind of cockney brother and man i'm gonna be really upset if this dorian gray character doesn't treat her right i was like i didn't feel like there was enough of a build to believe the brother's potential anger and rage i was like Really? Like, but then I thought, like, okay, maybe late 19th century, this is a different sector of society. And maybe there's kind of like an, like, you know, kind of an honor code built into this brother. I will defend my sister at all costs or something like that. So I don't know. I don't know. I struggled with him. Just every, uh, everybody, so in this novel is always feeling something so intensely and expressing yeah, it yeah. so intensely um, that that it's the question of believability is always at the forefront. But I think that Oscar Wilde's doing that on purpose. I think it's I think it's part of like the soul of the novel. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a different experience reading this novel as like a middle-aged person versus a in my 20s like I had a very different response to this when I read it for the first time in my 20s um I took yeah. the I took this I took Sybil and Dorian a little bit more seriously than I do now as as a middle-aged person like I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at their extravagance right but that's I I do think that that is part of the a proper response to this novel is accepting it on the terms of melodramatic responses to ordinary life experiences. Yeah. The, I mean, it's not surprising right. that he uses Romeo and Juliet as this lodestar of for, right. for her and for both, for both of them in a way, but especially for Sybil. Um, I, I don't know. I find the him this brother character to be compelling because well i think from a plot perspective it's less that he's trying to put the the threat of physical violence on dorian like to really give dorian risk i think it's more of a foreshadowing thing 
I think it's meant to to suggest to us, oh, Dorian could could, he could really blow this. Could treat her poorly. Yeah. There and might so, be some actual real life consequences to the way he's treating this girl. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I th- I just think that he because he the brother is like he has to go away to figure out what his life is. He's 16 years old. He 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 has real stakes for what happens with her. Whereas like for Dorian and Harry or Henry, Lord Henry and Basil, like it doesn't really matter. They're, they can keep going on living on their, you know, estates. <laughs> um, and so he, you know, he's about to be sort of separated from his family. And he's, he's at that point in his life where he is going to have to figure out what his life looks like. And he, you know, he's 16. It happens a little earlier then than it does now. <laughs> now it'd be like someone being in, about to leave, graduate college, right? Um, like in a right. Whit Stillman movie or something like that. That's a but, great comparison. <laughs> a Whit Stillman, that's a great comparison. Yeah. But, but so I found him to be almost more um, like his response to be more human and less archetypal than the other characters in the book. So Tim, I want to just kind of follow up with you know, you're saying you did you had a hard time with him, which is totally fine. Um, what about do you not have the same trouble with Dorian or Henry? Not as much. I totally get. I think you guys are exactly right. They're kind of archetypal, and I think we're meant to read them as archetypal. My complaint against the brother is. Remember Flannery O'Connor in one of um, her letters or one of her public addresses, she says, like one of the errors of young writers is that they make their characters, not really characters, but they make them serve the plot. You know, like I need some conflict here. I'm going to gin up a character who's going to, you know, like you said, David, foreshadow a potential um shortfalling of Dorian Gray and how it would manifest in the life of this family. Well, the brother would get really mad and he's going to beat Dorian up. He's going to kill him, he says. And it just seemed to me like the brother got injected into the into the story because Oscar Wilde felt like we need the threat. We need to show what's going to happen if Dorian Gray really screws this up. But I didn't buy the character that was saying that. I didn't like I didn't know him at all. I was just like, okay, so you're really mad at this guy you've never met, so mad that you're gonna kill him. You know, I was just like, I don't know. So I just I'm not in- buying it. The interesting thing about it is saying that we don't know him is maybe that's fair, but also I kind of wonder if we really like the degree to which we know any of these characters. Cause last week we talked about, let me rephrase that. I think that Oscar Wilde wants us to question the degree to which we can trust the characters. As we talked about last week, like with Henry, do we really think that what he's saying is what he means or, and, or any of the characters? Um, and so when you do that, you're kind of inherently, suggesting that maybe a character is not trustworthy, which means then it raises the question of whether we can know them. And I think with the brother, at least we have him, we can take him at face value. He is starting his life. He's from a lower class. He doesn't trust the people in the upper class. His He cares about his sister. Like the fact that he would rage and be upset at his sister for making this choice is almost a more believable action or choice than anything that I've read from any of the other characters, I suppose. I guess that's what I would say. I, will, I feel like I, I can trust that. that. I think that's a good point. 
I think that's a good point. See, I think he is a trustworthy character. I just hmm. don't think he's a well-formed character. Okay. Yeah, I think I could grant that. I mean, we don't get a lot of him to be so. You know, I, yeah. I just felt him. I found his appearance. I'll, in fact, I'll grant that. Yeah, I think that. I think that. I just found his appearance to be um, a compelling addition to the story, even if I agree with you. Like refreshingly direct. Here's yeah, somebody yeah. who's actually saying what's on his mind. Yeah, I I totally grant that. Now I think Sybil is saying exactly what's on her mind too. Mm-hmm. In yeah, a very me. over in an overwrought sort yeah. of way. Yeah. So Heidi, that do we? You know, we in this section we get some interesting extended inner soliloquizing. Mm-hmm. It's not really actually. They're not saying anything. They're thinking. Um, but we get Lord Henry. Um, at the end of what chapter four? four is that right? Yeah, he has this long section thinking about Dorian and and the nature of love and all this kind of stuff. And then we get we even get Basil thinking about it, and we get you know everybody's kind of doing a lot of thinking in this section, right? <laughs> and it kind of in the whole book, they're either talking or thinking. Um, there's very little doing. Um, and so I was wondering if you. <laughs> It goes back to the question of what are we supposed to view as the vision, like the the, the ideology or the philosophy mm. that is at the core of the book that we are supposed to accept as the right version of thought. Um, because he's bouncing, they're having conversations, but really it feels like the, I, these monologues, these, I don't know what the word is, these, these periods yeah, these of extended thought, philosophizing. Contemplations, right? They're really what's bouncing off of each other. Because when Henry's telling things to Dorian, even Basil's like, come on, dude. You don't really believe that. You're, and he's like, yeah, I don't, you're right. I kind of don't always believe what I'm saying. But, but then when they're thinking, do you think we're supposed to take their thoughts, the parts that doesn't involve them emoting or talking or con- trying to convince someone else at face value? And is that is like their dividing line between those two kinds of the writing in the book? Right. I think that's a really good question. And I I spent a lot of time thinking about that as I was reading the end of chapter four. Uh, is this, is those those two pages of, um, of Lord Henry's thoughts, are they meant to be free and direct discourse like in Jane Austen? Is this what he's thinking, but we don't have to accept it? Or is this what Oscar Wilde is claiming to be true about the nature of reality and giving us essentially like a mini essay in, in the book. I hope it's the first, if it's the first, it's much better. (laughs) If it's the second, it, it is quite shallow, superficial. um, And I, and I think badly written. So I'm going to land on it being free and direct discourse. This is what he's thinking um, and what he's wondering about uh, and the nature of his thoughts reflect the superficiality and misunderstanding of reality in his that that he represents in the novel. His Mephistophelian, I just made that an adjective. Um, I don't know if I pronounced it right though. Um, his his kind of devilish influence over uh, over Dorian, um, and then we see here that he actually thinks that. If it's free and direct dips, discourse, if this is just the content of his mind, then he actually does believe a lot of what the nonsense that he says. Hmm. Would it be helpful? Maybe I could read the yeah. first paragraph of that inner monologue. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it starts on page 52. 
As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped, and he began to think. Certainly, few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray, and yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had always been enthralled by the methods of natural science, by the ordinary subject matter of that science, but the ordinary subject matter of that science had seemed to him trivial and of no import. And so he had begun vivisecting himself as he had ended by vivisecting others. Human life, that appeared to him the one thing worth investigating. Compared to it, there was nothing else of any value. It was true that as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, nor keep the sulfurous fumes from troubling the brain and making the imagination turbid with monstrous fancies and misshapen dreams. There were poisons so subtle that to know their properties, one had to sicken of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them if one sought to understand their nature. And yet, what a great reward one received. How wonderful the whole world became to one to note the curious hard logic of passion and the emotional colored life of the intellect, to observe where they met and where they separated, at what point they were in unison, and at what point they were, dis they were at discord. There was a delight in that. What matter was the cost? One could never pay too high a price for any sensation. Mm. Yeah. Are these his kind of hedonistic musings, or is this the narrator telling us what life is? What life is? I hope it's the first. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's the first. I think Sorry, so David. Too. Well, no, I agree because I think that there's other times when other characters do this too. You get Basil mm -hmm. at the end of the, when he when he realizes he's thinking about Dorian being in love with Sybil at the end of six, five, six. And then he realizes that thinking about Dorian being in love has changed how he thinks about Dorian. So I, I don't, I think that there are lots of places where the book offers this kind of philosophizing. And in the case of Henry, the thing is he's actually kind of consistent mm -hmm. because at least he's telling us there the truth. He's telling us what his goal is. Like for him, this highest good is like, he's some sort of like, He's like being Freud, right? He wants to study the human psyche. And, and like that's that's why he wants to be friends with Dorian. And he wants Dorian. He's like, mm, Dorian and Dorian and married would be kind of interesting. And then when he'll be interesting when after six months he's no longer in love with him anymore. And he's kind of planting these seeds of chaos. He's like an agent of chaos in Dorian's life, purely for the sake of of, the enjoyment um, of observing what's going to happen like in science. Yeah, right, right. His, his twisted form of science. And so you have, through that, you have like art and science being put up against each other in this book. And I, I think that when they're, my, I, I would say that when they're talking like that, it's the characters being truthful. The only time when you can guarantee that they're being truthful with us. When they're talking to each other, they're being manipulative and they have, they have, they're, right. being they're putting and on their facades. And got, they're putting yeah. on their artistic facades, right? They're making yeah, yeah. themselves a piece of art. So or whatever where, their vision is. Right. Where do you guys see the difference between that private utterance from Henry and what he's saying publicly? Where what is the, the what is the gap in between? The yeah, is, yeah. Yeah. I think the gap is his life. 
Like he doesn't actually do. He doesn't do the stuff that he's advocating. Like he's, he has all of these thoughts that by now in the novel, this was a little bit different from our conversation last week. By now in the novel, it should be very clear to the reader that Lord Henry is, as David said, an agent of chaos. He's a corrupting influence on Dorian. Um, That Dorian was, he... He he is making Dorian in his own, in the in his own image in the sense of Dorian believes his words, but Lord Henry's actions are pretty staid. Like he's not S T A I D. Right? He's not actually doing this. He he's faithful to his wife. He like right. He's he's just living a regular aristocratic life. It's Dorian who's going out and putting all these things into practice, or at least beginning to right now. And that, I think that should be clear to the reader. And I think that's the disconnect between his thoughts, his words, and his actions. His actions don't do those things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, we're going to take a quick break because we have one more sponsor we need to tell you about. It's our friends at the Cersei Institute with their one-year program. It's the Cersei Atrium program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. I believe, Heidi, you, uh, you're you a part of this, right? That's right. I am leading an atrium class starting the first week of September. Uh, September 5th is the first day, and we are going to be talking about Shakespeare twice a month. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm so excited. So you can do Heidi's Shakespeare course. You can you can do that. You can do that one plus one of these other ones, like Norms of Nobility with Tanya Roselle, Plato's Dialogues with Marques, The Great Ideas with Jonathan Council, and The Divine Comedy with Kristen Rudd. So you can choose any one of those five courses, or you could you know make a bundle of atrium courses if you like uh, through exclusive live webinars. As Heidi said, there's two of those each month, and then an online discussion forum. The Atrium offers a forum for contemplation and collaboration. It's a place to linger and take pleasure in the depths of the Christian classical tradition alongside like-minded fellow educators. So if that is you, check that out at circeinstitute.org slash atrium. They provide the platform. You bring the desire for wisdom and virtue, and together that makes a community. So thanks to them for sponsoring. Again, that is circeinstitute.org slash atrium. All right, back to the conversation. So we've got Henry who's influencing Dorian and Dorian who is like hook, line and sinker. Yeah. All in on the, on the Henry project and doing what Henry thinks, you know, the good life is right. And his view, vision of beauty and all this kind of stuff is like Dorian's accepted it basically. And he's running with it and he's making choices with it and he's hurting other people because of it. Where does Basil fit into this as the creator of the painting? He was out of the book for a few chapters and then he comes back in he had the relationship with Dorian first. He had, you know, at first it feels like he's the character who's, you know, enamored. Like he has a genuine sense for a genuine form of being enamored or loving Dorian in a way that it, it runs counter to Basil's sort of scientific approach. He loves Dorian for what he can offer him as a case study, whereas Basil loves him because him as an artistic object, like more. Or maybe, 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 well, actually, here's the question. As I'm speaking, it just maybe it kind of became clear to me. Tim, do you think that his version of a relationship with Dorian is more honorable and honest than Henry's? Is For Basil's sure. where this is, he's almost like he views Dorian as a beautiful object to create art. But do you think it's more than that, such that it's more honorable than the case study that Basil, that Henry's making of him? Yeah, I th- I think so. I mean, I think that Basil's, affection adoration for dorian gray is genuine and 
I think that Lord Henry is kind of fascinated with Dorian Gray, but more as a plaything. You know, like just the position yeah. of the two it's men like in relation to Dorian Gray. Right, right, right. Henry is the cat. He is, you know, batting around the emotional life and he's going to get more involved in the actual, like, whatever public life of Dorian Gray. And so he's kind of over Dorian Gray, looking down on him as a plaything. And I think that Basil looks up to Dorian Gray almost like in an, you know, he's kind of idolizing him in a way that's pretty unhealthy, but there's still kind of a genuine affection and respect for Dorian Gray. And so I would say uh, of the two stances, I think Basil's a little bit healthier. I'm not going to say it's like, oh yeah, that's what a real great human companionship is about. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, but I at least think it's better than than Lord Henry's. Heidi, what do you think? I think I, I, I think I agree to a certain extent. I think I agree that Lord Henry's corrupting influence, like his his philosophy of hedonism, is more corrupting to Dorian than Basil's influence over Dorian. Basil has a moral center, right? And actually, I think Lord Henry does too. He just doesn't say it, right? Like, um, he he preaches something very different than his own life, and Dorian doesn't see that. However, I think that Basil's love for Dorian is just as distorted as Lord Henry's. Um, like I think in the first chapter in that conversation, when he is talking about the nature of his attachment to Dorian, I think that it's just as distorted and in 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 itself, even though the influence isn't quite as corrupting. I think he only sees Dorian as an object of mm. representing beauty and representing himself. I think his attachment to Dorian is just as selfish if not more so than Lord Henry's in the sense that he, he, he specifically tells Lord Henry, the only reason I care about this person is because he's so beautiful and because I can make something that represents myself out of him. And I think that's just as selfish and distorted. It's certainly not healthy. I wouldn't right. argue that like, yeah, this is the way to go, kids. Let's it's, let's follow Basil's lead. <laughs> right. I'm just like, Basil, if we have to right. choose one or the other. Right. Well, and yeah, I think I, Lord Henry's undoubtedly more corrupting in Dorian's life. Like this is, he is for sure the devil in to, to Dorian. Okay. This, I, this, yeah. this brings a question up for me. I think that the book is designed, I'm going to make an assertion, and I just want to hear if you guys agree with it or not. I think that the book is designed at the beginning for us, the reader, to be a little bit bewitched by Lord Henry. And as the book progresses, to see the fallout of his influence on those around him, especially on Dorian Gray. Do you agree? Are we meant to kind of 
not fall in love with Lord Henry, but be a little bit bewitched by his, oh, he's so scandalous, but he's got a point. You know, are we, is that what we're supposed to do? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that's, okay. that's what I was arguing last week is that Lord Henry is Mephistopheles. He is the devil and he is going to corrupt everybody, but we're supposed to be a bit charmed by him. We're supposed to yeah. think, oh, how charming. Look at his cute little paradoxes. Well, that's really interesting. I kind of like that. It's so funny that he went to this dinner party and charms the whole room of this like, you know, the stuffy aristocrats and just kind of shakes them up a little bit. Maybe we need that, right? And then as we go, we're like, oh my gosh, this is wicked. And and then I think it's a stroke of genius on Oscar Wilde's part to to actually make Lord Henry a pretty stuffy aristocrat himself. Like he lives just like everybody else. He just says things that create chaos. And that adds this other, I think another layer of complexity to this whole, to the book, which is this contemplation of art, facade, beauty, right? Image, shadows, right? Um, It's very much every single person is either a work of art or an, an image or a shadow of that's superficial and not real, right? Yeah. I think that in the beginning of the book, he offers us Henry's ideas in such a way that they're, they're, there's just enough truth to people Ish. who care about aesthetics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's just enough there for you, to think, for you to think, okay, <laughs> it, feels, it feels at first, like at first glance, like there might be something there. And if he just keeps pursuing it, He'll get to something truly meaningful. We talked last week about its vapidity, right? How vapid it is. I think that's the word we used. It's like small, but there's just enough of seed of truth wrapped in his charm to make you feel like maybe he's onto something. But then at the end of four, in that section you just read, I think that's where you get we get the sense that like he's experimenting on someone that he ostensibly is supposed to be caring about. Mm-hmm. You know, when he says things like, um, Dorian's sudden mad love for Sybil Vane was a psychological phenomenon of no small interest. There was no doubt that curiosity had much to do with it. Then he goes on and on. Our weakest motives were those of whose nature we were conscious. It often happened that when we really thought we were experimenting on others, we were really experimenting on ourselves. And and he says, um, he began to wonder whether he could ever make psychology so absolute a science that each little spring of life would be revealed to us. And so once he starts saying these things out loud, you begin to realize that whatever we thought he, whatever charm we thought he had is it's like the same kind of charm that some like dictator might have before they take Mm, over. Yeah. But on a smaller scale. Absolutely. Well, and he's, we see here on page 81, um, which this is at the end of chapter seven, Dorian um, is in the garden thinking about Sybil after he's been so cruel to her and thrown her over. And he sees, this is after he sees the picture and he sees the line of cruelty on his own lips in the, in the painting. Um, and he's thinking about that. And he says this, um, this is the last paragraph on page 81. He says, cruelty, had he been cruel, it was the girl's fault, not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist, had given his love to her because he had thought her great. Then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy. 
And yet a feeling of infinite regret came over him as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he had watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he had suffered also. During the three terrible hours that the play had lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, eon upon eon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment if he had been wound, if he had wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions. When they took lovers, it was merely to have one with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry had told him that, and Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. So we see this corruption going deeper and deeper and deeper into him that's coming through Lord Henry. When he has a moment of conscience, conscience, he has a moment of conscience, a moment that he could potentially have repentance. And then we've got the painting. Like, so that's the influence of, uh, of Basil. And then we have these like insidious words that are taken over his mind. And we also have Dorian himself who says women only live on their emotions. Right. So what is, what is he doing? He's doing that, right? He's only living on his emotions, which is something that Lord Henry has told him that he should do. So we have this like trifecta of corruption, like Dorian's own corruptible soul that has no moral center to to fend off uh, these corrupting influences in his life. And, And it was Basil that made the painting that displaces his humanity divides his humanity into art and reality. Uh, and, and it is Basil that did that. So Basil's not a, he's not a good influence on, on Dorian. He is himself a corrupting influence on Dorian by creating this painting that divides Dorian's humanity. Dorian doesn't have any kind of defense, moral defense against these influences. And then we have Lord Henry's words in his ears that are taking him down this hole, which is why I, as I argued last week, and I will keep arguing, this Oscar Wilde himself claimed a philosophy of hedonism, but we already have this as a morality tale. Within the story, there is a, a, a true soul, a, a true moral center in this novel that we're already seeing. It's it's interesting that he uses Romeo and Juliet because yeah. Romeo and Juliet are children that are like, they're caught between two warring houses, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the context for their for their youthful falling in love and and then the tragedy that spins out from that. Um, and here, it's almost like we've got these two children. Sybil and Dorian are basically children, but they're oh, caught yeah. between like two warring houses almost. Um, and you could look, I mean, I think he's pitting so many different things against each other. You could say art versus science. You could say, you know, Basil versus Henry, you know, like there's all these different ways you could look at that. But I think that the putting them in between and making them have to make choices is really interesting. And that's where the conscience comes in. Cause even at the end of chapter seven, if you'd kept reading, it says, um, the picture changed. It says, uh, for every sin that he committed, a stain would fleck and wreck its fairness, but he would not sin. The picture changed or unchanged would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. He would not see Lord Henry anymore. Would not at any rate listen to those subtle poisonous theories that in Basil Hallward's garden had first stirred within him the passion for impossible things. He would go back to Sybil, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. Then at the end of the chapter, it says a faint echo of his love came back to him. He repeated her name over and over again. The birds that were singing in the dew-drenched garden seemed to be telling the flowers about her. So at the end of the chapter, he seems like maybe he's going to resist 
And he recognizes in the moment that he's being corrupted. Like he is self-aware about right. what Henry is doing to him. But the question is, does he have the the inner strength to continue on the path that he's, you know, that that seems to have been the choice that he made at the end of seven? I think there's some foreshadowing that suggests otherwise, but it's interesting the way he lays that out and and lays out the notion that at this point, we are now at the point in the book where it's about the choices that Dorian makes. It's not just about people wielding their influence over him and drawing him out. It's now been set up that he has to make choices and his con- choices related to his conscience. And I think that's that's a pretty like we're now like it's like act two now, right, Tim? <laughs> if you right. have like yeah, a reaction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we talk about the midpoint in a book all the time. Oftentimes our main character goes from like seeking to understand to acting on a new understanding. And that's kind of what's happening right now. Dorian is kind of like, Henry, gosh, are you serious? And then he, even though he resists Henry a little bit, he does start to move under the direction of his coaching in his life. And we start to see the fallout of it. Yeah. I, I just want to say one yeah. thing. Yeah. I have struggled with this book and the reason I've struggled with this book, I think I kept asking myself, I'm like, this is a classic. Why are you having such a hard time with it? And I think I know the reason now. I think at the beginning we are supposed to, as Heidi has argued, fall in love a little bit, be enamored by, be bewitched by Lord Henry. And I just wasn't. I just thought, I, He's right. It's right. And I'm just like, bro, whatever. Like, come on, this is silliness. But I do think, and Heidi, you said this also, like you read it in your 20s and you had a much more favorable impression of it. I think if I was 17 or 18, I might have really fallen for Lord Henry. And so I was talking to Christy Williams, our friend offline, because she she listened to the first episode and she had some thoughts and she shared them with me. She, her argument is... I think this is a book for young people. I don't think this is a book for adults. Not that an adult can't enjoy it. But when she said that, I thought, oh, maybe that that makes sense to me. Because a young adult novel? Maybe it is. Yeah, it's a YA novel in like late 19th century. I'm going to reshelve it in the shop. That's a great idea. Because all of our main characters, Dorian is pretty young. And he, his kind of mental, soulful terrain is where most of the action has been happening in the first half. But I think as an adult, Lord Henry's sophistry is just not plausible any longer. Like once you've accumulated some experience, just like, bro, I've met a lot of people like you who have this kind of like languid dope smoking vibe you know and they just like talk about their pleasure seeking yes, we know about your car but no, no no and now all of those people are like unemployed gamers this is like i'm probably this the is probably version. offensive whatever but the modern version <laughs> is they're just kind of unemployed gamers and you're like yeah i've seen how that plays out in the this late 1800s just, they were just aristocrats they're just aristocrats who, like, maybe they had a small opium habit, but it was manageable. It was no big deal. Well, they could walk but in their gardens. They could walk in their gardens. 
but and they and they still and they like had enough money that if they lost some money they weren't going to be unemployed but in like modern american life you're like i've seen this play out i've seen this play out it doesn't ever go in a good direction this philosophy is just so silly and okay. so i was having a hard time with it because i just from the beginning couldn't buy it but i think if i put myself in the mode of a of a young person who's not seen their friends fall away because they just live this very shallow life, then I'd think, yeah, cool. This sounds really fun. And I'm kind of like thumbing my nose at like my parents and grandparents. They don't get it. You okay, know? so I I buy this argument that it's kind of a book for young people that unless you're younger, you're not going to necessarily see Hen- Henry as compelling or be bewitched by him. But that makes me wonder if maybe like young people that are the people who shouldn't read this book. Um, well, if, because, you, if you read the whole novel, though, which we haven't right, gotten to right, in the conversation, right. then I think every sure. young person should read this novel. Okay, that's Just fair. Don't, yeah. don't stop at chapter you, six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, I just, I agree with Tim. I think that um, the, I think hedonism is the temptation of youth. Um, it's a very, it's a very tempting life of you. And we, as we we have lived out or seen or observed the consequences of that kind of lifestyle. So it's no longer a temptation for us. We're just, um, so, and, but I think that the meditations on the nature of art have a lot more of a compelling depth to them, especially for, uh, for Oscar Wilde's generation and what was going on in 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 culture then is kind of like art will save the world right if we just have this like rich culture the civilization that that the beauty of 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 the depth of culture will kind of carry us through life and um and and like shakespeare for example is he's not looking at shallow art he has this great love of the bard right although he kind of mocks that he loves shakespeare there's always these descriptions of beauty in the natural world and of food and all that and i think that's alive and well for adult humans that that think somehow like culture and art and the good the good things of life are going to provide um the the kind of a meaning making uh life experience that's divorced from um uh from from morality and 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 i think that that's an alive and well temptation for people even in our age um and especially and frankly in our kind of circles um we that we dwell in like literature will save the world it won't right um and 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 I think that he's kind of taking that on in the novel too. And if we look at it that way, it's a little bit more compelling than just sheer hedonism. You're right. You're you're exactly right. Yeah, I think the time in British culture, this is just what you said, Heidi. I'm just repeating it. Um, that there's kind of an I'm enamored with the possibilities of art. It can save my soul, not just elevate it, but save my soul. I do think that he's speaking into that. And ironically enough, Oscar Wilde is giving a rebuke to that. That part I yes. don't really understand. That's like, I mean, I, I do understand it because authors all the time write things that they don't believe with such force. But it seems like Oscar Wilde's entire life was bent on 
this kind of a pose. Exactly. It's a little bit like Lord Henry's. It's so fascinating. It's that's really why, fascinating. That's why I think this, that's why I think his bio, biography adds another level and yeah. depth of interpretation to this story that matters a lot. And I think that that's, he's, Somebody posted a quote from G.K. Chesterton on the Substack that everybody should go back and read on Substack that when Chesterton claims that Oscar Wilde had uh, a much more um, like interesting and compelling soul than he claimed, mm. like he has a depth to him when he's challenging his own presuppositions in his novels and whether that's intentional or not, it's almost more interesting if it's not. Yeah. So I yeah. like that. And I think that this novel carries some like hefty weight in light of that. All right, Tim, I know you need to get going. Uh, I know you got a meeting and um, I got to go open the shop here. Um, Heidi, any other final thoughts? No. Mm-mm. All right, this has been fun. Uh, two two episodes down on, on the picture of Dorian Gray. Next week, we are going to be discussing chapters 8 through 12. So that'll be your, that's your reading assignment for between now and then. Don't forget that you can follow us along on that hideous strength. We've got a couple episodes left of that. Uh, the next episode will drop, um, I guess, uh, a week from Friday with chapters 10 and 11. I believe it's 10 and 11. I'll have to go back and look. All these reading assignments and, and sections are just blending together. So I apologize if I said that wrong. Thanks, of course, to CLT for, for sponsoring and uh, for the Cersei Atrium for sponsoring as well. So both of those are making this, this uh, episode possible, this show possible this month. So thank you to them. Heidi, Tim's gone, but thank to you as well. You're welcome, David. <laughs> for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.